78 countries are contributing to Operation Desert Shield from New Zealand. Socks. Socks ranging in size six over hair all the way through 12. Now, now six is small. 12, that's kind of big. Me, I'm a 10 and a half right in there. Could wear a tan down here. Wouldn't be prudent. Hello and welcome to Whistle Stop, a podcast of the presidency. I'm John Dickerson, co-host of CBS This Morning. In early November 1989, the White House briefing room remained president-free. The Berlin Wall had fallen the symbol of the unsettled post-World War II order and the source of constant clashes between communism and capitalism was crumbling into spiky chunks. Yet the speechwriters for the victorious president of the winning side were not animated by this to start the clattering at their keyboards. The champagne stayed cool in its bottles. The footballs remain unspiked in the end zone. It may have been the greatest non-celebration of the modern presidency. And we'll have more on this story and what didn't happen in a moment. But first, a word from our sponsor. On November 9, 1989, West Berliners took sledgehammers to the wall and bulldozers and cranes came at it from East Berlin. More than two million people from the East visited the West to participate in a celebration that one journalist called the greatest street party in the history of the world. People used hammers and picks and screwdrivers to pick away at the wall. Soon it was gone. Berlin was united for the first time since 1945. The war was finally over. At the White House, the press pool was ushered into the Oval Office to talk to the president, President George Herbert Walker Bush. America had been fighting to unify Germany for four decades. It was a personal goal of the president's. Now it was happening before our very eyes on television, live and in color. Why wasn't President Bush a little more zesty? as he leaned back in his chair. We pick up the action as it's recorded in John Meacham's book, Destiny and Power. Leslie Stahl of CBS News had taken up position close to the president. Bush was seated. Stahl, he recalled, was poised over me. You know, in in what you just said, this is a sort of great victory, but you don't seem... That was from a PBS special, American Experience, George Herbert Walker Bush, that aired in 2008. Later, Bush dictated what he was thinking into his micro-cassette recorder. The press gets all over me, he told his diary. Why aren't you more excited? Why aren't you leading? Why aren't you doing more? We have come today to talk about presidential restraint. The quality is undervalued, or at least underappreciated, in the chief executive. Because we demand heroics and action from our presidents. Nobody knows the system better than me. Which is why I alone can fix it. We will be able to look back and tell our children that this was the moment when we began to provide care for the sick and good jobs to the jobless. This was the moment when the rise of the oceans began to slow and our planet began to heal. Candidates promise heroic action in campaigns in order to feed a hungry electorate. Once in office, the big promises must be matched by big action. If there are no cinematic flourishes, what will the cameras photograph? No one is going to click on a YouTube link of a president patiently not rushing to the situation room. 
But as the nation reflected on George Herbert Walker Bush's presidency in the early December 2018 after his passing, it was his talent for restraint, knowing when not to act, that was among those talents most heralded. Bush, through that attribute, helped end the Cold War without firing a single shot. During George Herbert Walker Bush's single four-year term, the Berlin Wall fell and Germany reunified peacefully. The Warsaw Pact, the Soviet Union, and the Cold War all ended. The United States emerged as the world's preeminent superpower after four decades of global nuclear breath-holding. The struggle ended quietly, and as a result, more nations of the world saw the United States as a force for good in the new world order that it had created. Never before in human history had a great power broken apart with more than 20,000 nuclear weapons in its midst, writes the diplomatic historian Jeffrey Engel in his book When the World Seemed New, George Herbert Walker Bush and the End of the Cold War. There were no helpful precedents, writes Engel, for Bush to follow, and no guarantees it would all end well. But the presidential quality of self-control may be more than simply the key to a particular episode of this whistle-stop. It may be the quality at the heart of the difference between the presidency as traditionally conceived and the presidency as it shimmers, shimmies, and shakes today. Restraint is at the heart of the tradition of service, self-sacrifice, and collective action that has been the binding agent of the American social contract. Challenging that cohesion is the ethos of the current administration, which is a reflection of the age from which its chief executive emerged, a culture of celebrity, individual fulfillment, and unbridled expression in which the self is supreme. Obstacles to that expression of self are to be pulverized, not something you try to create inside yourself, silly. There is always a tension in the presidency between restraint and action. The office was designed to be energetic. It was the central point of the debates at the Constitutional Convention. The legislature and the judiciary could not move fast enough. An executive, said James Wilson, delegate from Pennsylvania, ought to possess the powers of secrecy, vigor, and dispatch. Of course, the founders knew, just as they were setting up an office with these qualities, that they were embedding a danger in the office. The danger was thwarted by a system of shared powers. Congress and the judiciary would keep the president from trying to act like James Bond. But there was another important check in that office that they assumed. And that was the virtue of the chief executive. This is why the founders didn't want early presidents to run for the office, to campaign for the office. That grubbing for personal ambition showed that they lacked the virtue for the office, and virtue was central to the office. Now, this is no small thing. The virtue would be the key to not exceeding executive power. So what do we call a person who does not reach past their power? We say that person exercises restraint. This is the big lesson of Washington voluntarily giving up power. It was an act of restraint, and as Lin-Manuel Miranda informs us all, it was also a lesson to future leaders in the power of restraint, which was necessary for the office, because, of course, Washington saw himself as an example for those who would follow. I walk on untrodden ground, he wrote. 
there is scarcely any part of my conduct which may not hereafter be drawn into precedent. And this was, of course, when Washington left the presidency after only two terms. This was, of course, the second time that he had done this. He went to Annapolis after the Revolutionary War and resigned his post. This is what caused George III to say, what? If he does that, he is truly the world's greatest man. Now, George III didn't exactly actually say that. That's the that's the story as it's told. He did express a somewhat similar sentiment as it has been recorded. But the fact that America has over the years polished up this little anecdote and had him respond in real time tells us something about the way we like to conceive of ourselves and our country. It's like the cherry tree anecdote. The eye shall not tell a lie. I I cut down the cherry tree. That's not true. But the story tells us something about what we expect our American presidents have, the qualities they need to have. And what's the quality in that story? Restraint. George III equates greatness with restraint. At this point, I'll recommend Michael Beschloss's Presidents of War. It's a very good book. And I enjoyed talking to him for uh, the CBS This Morning podcast where You can go listen to that conversation, uh, which went at some length. Jefferson and Madison provide an interesting test of this initial tension between action and restraint in the presidential system. And this is coming out of uh, Beschloss's Presidents of War, his new book. So Jefferson was the first to resist the pull of the use of executive power to act, as Beschloss tells it, when the U.S. battleship Chesapeake was sunk. And and first, before we get to the Chesapeake and its sinking, why was the presidential power and war and restraint so important? Well, of course, the founders were concerned that the war-making power would be the fastest route to a seizing of power by a president. That essentially they would say, well, we're at war, I've got to take all these powers, and then he'd never give them back. So the Chesapeake is sunk in 1807 by a British warship. And the nation and the Congress were hungry for war. Jefferson was reluctant. The pundits were rattling their quill pens. Oh, for a Washington or Adams to wield the sword of state, wrote the Federalist Courier of Charleston, South Carolina. Jefferson could have gotten the national blood going by having a good festive war, but he detested war not just for its own sake, but because he believed that, again, war was this centralizing force. It would create more federal spending, centralize political power, and that, among other things, would strengthen the New York bankers. This is a part of what his fight was with, that first set of fights with Hamilton, one of them anyway, which is that Hamilton wanted to consolidate the Revolutionary War debts, and Jefferson saw that as a consolidation of federal power. So Jefferson, after the sinking of the Chesapeake in 1807, used restraint. And looking back on it, a letter he wrote in 1812, Jefferson wrote this about his ability to tame the dogs of war. Now, it's a rather long quote, and it testifies to the fact that before people had Twitter and the Internet interrupting them every 30 seconds, they were A, wordier, B, inserted a lot of parentheticals into their conversation, and C, had the capacity and attention to hold on to long sentences and still divine their meaning. So here goes Jefferson and a test of whether you have those qualities. This is Jefferson writing about restraint in not responding to the British sinking of the U.S. battleship, the Chesapeake. But if ever I was gratified with the possession of power and of the confidence of those who had entrusted me with it, 
It was on that occasion when I was enabled to use both for the prevention of war, towards which the torrent of passion here was directed almost irresistibly. And when not another person in the United States less supported by authority and favor could have resisted it. Put that in a tweet and smoke it. Madison, Jefferson's successor, could not resist war. He was goaded for not taking on the British for seizing American seamen. And this is essentially a it's a basically an ongoing fight that's going on. So Madison is dealing with a series of things that essentially Jefferson was dealing with, too. So the Brits were taking basically sailors from American ships. Samuel Smith, a Maryland senator, wrote, Pusillanimity has been charged on the president. And so Madison bounded into war, writing a British friend, War, dreadful as the alternative is, could not do us any more injury than the present state of things. And it would certainly be more honorable to the nation and gratifying to public feelings. Problem is, giving in to the crowd baying for blood, Madison went and launched a war to remedy a situation that had already been remedied by the time he started the war. Here's Beschloss concluding. Madison could not know that he was launching a conflict which would consume many American lives for which the principal cause of war had just vanished. And to understand that a little bit more closely, uh, you should uh, read Beschloss's book. So I won't go through the rest of the book, though. Uh, Polk's manufactured war with Mexico is interesting, and we'll get to that in another episode, I hope, because, boy, did that guy have chutzpah. The point is that our earliest presidents, the third and the fourth, frame the challenge that has always existed in the presidency, uh, the tension between action and the necessity of restraint. And I would add one, uh, just one little modern beat into this question of restraint. Stanley McChrystal, who is one of the greatest war fighters alive, former commander of special forces, coalition commander in Afghanistan, so he knows about war and is uh, not shy about using uh, the weapons of war. He was asked recently what the lessons could be learned from the wars in Afghanistan and Iraq, and he said this, in the case of Afghanistan, immediately after 9-11 in terms of military action, we should have done nothing initially. I now believe we should have taken the first year after 9-11 and sent 10,000 young Americans, military, civilians, diplomats, to language school, Pashto, Dari, Arabic. We should have started to build up the capacity we didn't have. I would have spent that year with diplomats traveling the world as an aggrieved party. So there you see McChrystal upon reflection, cautioning and, and counseling restraint. Okay, now, we'll get back to our narrative in a moment, but in addition to not plunging the country into a war, there are broader benefits to resisting the pull of the limbic system when you are president. Here's a passage from Robert Dalek's book on FDR, FDR of political life. He's writing about how FDR handled attacks against him. FDR identified with Lincoln's reflections on his efforts to, quote, do the best I know how, the very best I can, and I mean to keep on doing it to the end. If the end brings me out all right, what is said against me will not amount to anything. If the end brings me out all wrong, then angels swearing I was right would make no difference. Roosevelt believed that Lincoln, like himself, quote, no matter how philosophic he was in public, was hurt by these attacks but his predecessor had kept his peace. That was and is the great lesson, Roosevelt said. You won't always be right, but you mustn't suffer from being wrong. 
That's what kills people like us. So restraint is a fundamental leadership quality because it helps a leader put the greater good ahead of private impulse. More broadly, it is strategic rather than tactical. It puts long-term thinking, their thinking, their goals, their planning ahead of short-term reacting to momentary blips. In a hyperactive world, restraint is even more important because you're constantly being tested by a torrent of assaults from pundits and aides and advisors that amount to a denial-of-service attack on your restraint and willpower. Restraint is connected to vision because it is your vision that gives you restraint in times when people want to have you steer by the moment and not by your fixed star. Bush was accused of lacking the vision thing, but you can't have restraint if you don't have vision. In the presidency, this kind of restraint and sense of history is important. Sense of history, really, I'm talking about FDR referring back to Lincoln there. This is important because for no other reason it keeps the presidency from being hooked up to the seething responses of its occupant, which at the very least would lead to mayhem. But it's also important because in our modern age, a jumpy, whipsawing president incapable of commanding his own emotions can make the public watching him a little jumpy and bothered, too. If the public isn't jumpy and bothered by a president's whipsawing around, it's because the public thinks the president is insignificant or not worth paying attention to. And that makes him a figure of derision and laughter or a president who can't command attention, focus and the support of a nation in times of crisis. And that's important because currency with the public was a part of the role that was one of the fundamental ones the founders sought to create when they created the whole office. The office was a, quote, great cement of society, as Hamilton put it. That cement won't hold if everyone is having a big snicker. So where did George Herbert Walker Bush get this restraint from? Here is his daughter, Doro Bush Koch, explaining it. It was my grandmother who taught my dad the basic lessons in life that he still adheres to. My dad was playing soccer in elementary school, and um, he came in, and he was thrilled with himself because he'd scored three goals. And he said, Mom, I've scored three goals. And she said, well, that's nice, George, but how did the team do? He always heard her voice in his head saying, don't brag about yourself. And that's hard to do when you're running for president of the United States. Bush's penchant for restraint was soaked into his bones, and it is throughout his diaries and letters during his White House years. I'm certainly not seen as a visionary, he wrote, but I hope I'm seen as steady and prudent and able. Bush was temperate in all his pursuits, once asked by Dan Rather if he was a conservative enough for GOP critics who were attacking him from the right. Bush said, I'm a conservative, but I'm not a nut about it. Bush was not a nut about anything. Now, Bush had a particular problem with restraint. People thought it made him unfit to be president. The energetic executive had turned in the course of American history from that one they debated at the Continental Congress into something uh, and where they talked about secrecy, vigor and dispatch had the office had turned into a superhero office. Bush's restraint was incompatible with that notion of the presidency. He'd been on Ford's shortlist for the vice presidency, but hadn't made the cut in part because he wasn't considered leadership material enough. Ronald Reagan also thought Bush was too slight. He remembered when in Nashua, New Hampshire, the two had met for a debate. This was Reagan's I paid for this microphone moment, a cinematic revival of his campaign based on a theatrical reaction that all Whistlestop listeners will recognize from 
uh, one of our very first episodes. It was this scene in the Nashua High School, a perfect moment for the modern action-focused presidency. Bush, on the other hand, had shrunk from the moment, focusing on how Reagan and the other candidates hadn't followed the rules of the agreement governing the debate. It imprinted on Reagan that Bush was a wimp, wrote journalist and author Jules Whitcover in Politico, recounting a conversation he had had with an intimate of Reagan's. He couldn't understand, he being Reagan here, he couldn't understand how a man could have sat there so passively. He felt it showed a lack of courage. Finally, there was, of course, the Newsweek cover story, The Wimp Factor, written in 1987. It shined a light on the fact that while Bush was qualified for the presidency, he had had all of those jobs, after all. His prudence and demeanor, the magazine suggested, were incompatible with it. Newsweek, of course, was chasing a buzzy cover line. It was trying to get people to talk. But the cover line helps us illustrate the ongoing tension between covering presidential campaigns as sporting events and covering them simply on what voters want, and covering presidential campaigns and presidents themselves through the filter of what a president actually does in office and whether he is prepared for it. And, by the way, keeping focused on what part of the office is truly important. The week of Bush's death, editor Evan Thomas, former former Newsweek editor Evan Thomas, who has written at length about the presidency, said he had gotten Bush wrong in using that cover line. The fact that George Bush stayed prudent even in the face of these kinds of challenges helps us understand how durable his prudence was. He understood there was a cost to practicing it. When you do the right thing, even knowing it will cost you, that is the opposite of doing the expedient thing. That's often an attribute we associate with good presidents. At the start of George W. Bush's term, the Soviet Union was confronting the United States. Conservatives and Bush, to some degree, saw the Soviet leader Mikhail Gorbachev as a dangerous wolf in sheep's clothing. He talked about reforms, but that might have been cover for reasserting Soviet power. Those hawks assumed he was what Vladimir Putin would actually end up being. The Iron Curtain draped in front of nine nations at this period. Germany was the most emotionally and strategically volatile. Berlin was split, and America's European allies didn't think it could ever be unified, or that it would be a good thing if it were put back together. Bush had a different view. The Europeans worried that if Germany were put back together, it would would revert to its tendencies that had led to the Nazi uh, uprising. But Bush had a different view. He believed that a unified Germany could join NATO and that this would be an ally for the United States and the West. But he knew that to do so would also make Russia nervous and that he would have to tend that relationship. How would Bush manage the complicated ending of the Cold War? The powerful allies like Margaret Thatcher of Great Britain and Helmut Kohl of Germany? Well, he would do this by tending relationships. Here's Condoleezza Rice, who was one of his foreign policy advisors, describing on CBS This Morning the lessons that he taught her about dealing with foreign leaders. What did you learn from George Herbert Walker I learned from uh, President Bush how to be a good public servant and what that meant. I learned to care about relationships before you needed to call on somebody. I remember as a young staffer, I got this note early in February. It said, I want to congratulate Helmut Kohl on his victory in the Bundestag. And I was the specialist. I thought, what victory in the Bundestag? (laughs) But he was reaching out before he had to ask Helmut Kohl to do something difficult for German unification. And that's who he was. He absolutely valued uh, relationships and, uh, and valued people. 
Here's uh, Jeffrey Engel adding, uh, who wrote again, when the world seemed new, George Herbert Walker Bush and the end of the Cold War. Here's what Engel writes. Bush's diplomacy also offers a useful example, demonstrating that leadership experience and patience matter. The wording of a letter, the tenor of a conversation, knowing when to listen and when to yell, knowing most of all that success demands hard work and the investment of time. Like all powerful lessons, this one appears obvious at first blush, but too often history has turned a dangerous corner because such prudent leadership was lacking when needed most. That idea of investment of hard work and time reminds me of Kennedy before his meeting with Khrushchev and Nixon reading up before his meeting with Mao in China. Both hit the books for months seeking advantage. It wasn't just advantage to beat the other guy, but it was studying up to gain the understanding required for empathy. If you can put yourself in the other guy's shoes, then you can help him get the outcome you want. When the wall fell and the Soviet Union started to crumble, the pressure on the president to be assertive came from all quarters. We've already heard from the media in our opening, but then came the partisans. Senator George Mitchell, the Democratic leader. I urge President Bush to express the sense of elation that all Americans feel as the East German people cross and erase barriers that have imprisoned them for decades. Congressman Richard Gephardt, the House Democratic leader. We have a president who, at least for now, is inadequate to the moment. That was from a PBS special American Experience, George Herbert Walker Bush, that aired in 2008. Dick Gephardt also lamented that at the very time freedom and democracy are receiving standing ovations in Europe, our president is sitting politely in the audience with little to say and even less to contribute. There was also pressure from within Bush's own administration. Condoleezza Rice said, I was one of those who thought he should go to Berlin. He should be at the wall for Kennedy, for Reagan, for all those who had wanted the wall to come down. He should go there. But from his point of view, this was a German moment. He wanted to have the end of the division of Germany be a German moment. It was a moment for Germany to come to terms with its division. And it was a moment for Germany to celebrate that the division had ended. But it was more than that. Bush knew not to rush in and make Germans think that the U.S. was the liberator. Better to have them feel inspired because that would help give them the emotional lift to continue with the difficult task of reunification. But he also remembered when the Hungarians revolted against the Soviet-backed regime in 1956 and the CIA had led the Hungarians to believe the U.S. would rush to their support. That didn't work out so well. He also... So in this case, he didn't want the East Germans to think the U.S. Army was going to rescue them if the Soviets decided to crack down when the wall went down. But he also had a bigger reason that had nothing to do with Germany. He didn't want to spook the Russians into overreacting. He wanted to help Gorbachev unwind from the Cold War. If Bush had danced in the end zone, he would have agitated the conservatives putting pressure, the hardliners putting pressure on Gorbachev. Gorby might have had to crack down hard on countries, including Germany, struggling for their independence. He was already cracking down on some of the Soviet satellite countries. And Bush didn't want to put pressure on Gorbachev to force him to do more cracking down as a way to show his conservatives that he wasn't losing this geopolitical fight. Also, he was worried about um, a coup in Russia to overthrow Gorbachev from those hardliners who would think, hey, you're losing in our titanic struggle against capitalism. Bush sent a message to Gorbachev saying the U.S. has no intention of seeking unilateral advantage from the current process of change. This was Bush. 
Having taken a read of Gorbachev and the situation, one he'd studied for a while, understanding what the situation looked like from Gorbachev's end, from the other person's vantage point, and then doing what he thought that person needed to help that person survive. Because at this point, Bush uh, believed that Gorbachev was the route to a unified Germany and a, a peaceful or dismantled Soviet Union. Uh, here's how Bush's former national security advisor and future secretary of defense, Robert Gates, put it. What he understood that very few of his critics understood was that Gorbachev's position in Moscow was relatively parlous at that time. And the concern that he had was that if he celebrated too much, it could serve as a provocation to the conservatives in the Soviet Union who were still powerful in the KGB, the army, and the party. In fact, the same people who launched a coup against Gorbachev two years later. And I think, I think in retrospect, uh, he felt, and we all felt, that had he pushed too hard, had he celebrated too hard that November, it might in fact have precipitated the coup against Gorbachev a couple of years earlier, and, and he may not have survived it. Here's what Bush dictated to his diary. We are all haunted by the crushing of the uprisings in Hungary in 1956 and Prague in 68. We did not want to provoke a similar disaster. I kept hearing the critics saying we're not doing enough on Eastern Europe. Here the changes are dramatically coming our way, and if any one event, Poland, Hungary, and East Germany, had taken place, people would say this is great. But it's all moving fast, moving our way, and you've got a bunch of critics jumping around saying we ought to be doing more. What they mean is double spending. It doesn't matter what, just send money. I think it's crazy. And if we mishandle this and get way out in front looking like the rebellions are an American project, you would invite crackdown and invite negative reaction that could result in bloodshed. The longer I'm in this job, the more I think prudence is a value and experience matters. At Bush's Malta summit in December of 1990, he made sure that Gorbachev understood the motivation for his behavior. I hope you notice that the United States has not engaged in condescending statements aimed at damaging the Soviet Union, he told Gorbachev. He also mentioned the accusations at home that he was being too cautious. I'm a cautious man, President Bush told the Soviet leader, but I am not a coward. And my administration will seek to avoid doing anything that would damage your position in the world. Another translation of that is I'm a cautious man, but I'm not timid. Uh, two different uh, accounts of that exchange. George Herbert Walker Bush was accused of not having the vision thing, but he did have a vision and he did have standards. And the notes to foreign leaders were a part of that vision. The tending of those foreign leaders was a part of that vision. The tendency to think of the opponent and figure out what he needed. The attention to component parts and how they might interact and clatter against each other in foreign policy. That was all part of a vision and a worldview. A vision about how you manage a world to increase freedom and peace that guided Bush's hand. In the wake of the Bush funeral, where his qualities were lauded as self-evidently wonderful, this idea of prudence and restraint seems obvious. It shouldn't require an entire episode that essentially says the president shouldn't go off half-cocked. And yet, sideline geniuses seem to forget this notion pretty quickly. The wimp factor, of course, that Bush wrestled with was one obvious example. But there was also the problem with Eisenhower. In 1982, Fred Greenstein wrote a book called The Hidden Hand Presidency about Eisenhower. Beltway experts had proclaimed Eisenhower as a slow-witted, disconnected leader. A joke at the time said it would be terrible if Chief of Staff Sherman Adams died and Eisenhower became president. 
But Greenstein found in Eisenhower's papers that the opposite was the case with his presidency. He, in fact, was on the case. He just wasn't flashy and emotive about it. The Atlantic's Jeffrey Goldberg discussed Obama's foreign policy with President Obama in 2016 and found a succinct expression of that worldview. Don't do stupid stuff. That's the way President Obama put it. Now, that's a different way of talking about this quality of President Bush's that we've been examining, and that's prudence. Hillary Clinton, running for president in 2016, said don't do stupid stuff wasn't a sufficient foreign policy vision. Again, everybody's talking about restraint today, but the, the, Hillary Clinton's view about President Obama suggested that restraint wasn't a sufficient vision. In 2011, Ryan Lizza, then of The New Yorker, quoted an Obama official defining the Obama approach to foreign policy as leading from behind and asserted that the U.S. had to act with more restraint in the world where the U.S. was unpopular after two wars and particularly the Iraq war. And there were also direct confrontations that the U.S. would want to avoid with China and Russia because the country could not, America could not handle conflicts out in the open. The country was weary after the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan. So this was a strategy of the Obama administration. It might have been right or it might have been wrong, but it was a strategy in the George Herbert Walker Bush mold. Yet it was criticized as wrong on its face. It was self-evidently laughable. Leaders lead, went the critique. They put their sturdy jaw at the edge of the wave-splitting prow of the ship of state. Here's John Podhoritz writing in commentary. The phrase, leading from behind, he writes, is so revealing that I wouldn't be surprised if the White House goes on a hunt to find the person who said it in order to defenestrate him before he does more colossal damage to his boss's chances of re-election. Leading from behind. who boy. Podhoritz ended the article there. The phrase and what it connoted was so self-evidently awful that this was all that was needed to be said. Now, Podhoritz might have been arguing that the phrase was politically deadly, in a campaign where voters only want action heroes. Or he might have been arguing and making the case that leading from behind is incompatible with America's role in the world. Whatever he was trying to say, the tone is clear. Restraint is at odds with the office, laughably so. But when Obama talked about leading from behind and his mantra, don't do stupid stuff, it's not all that different from what George Bush said, which was, sometimes you shape events by not making any mistakes. That is the patrician version of don't do stupid stuff. The difference then between the two must be found in when restraint is applied. And that's all we're really arguing for here. Obviously, the presidency requires dash and adventuresomeness and risk-taking. If you have too much prudence, Osama bin Laden is never killed. If you have too much prudence, you don't press the Soviets and ratchet up the language as Reagan did, which pressed the Soviet Union into giving up its arms race because it couldn't keep up with the United States. But there is a balance, and there is another side. The John Wayne superhero version of the presidency needs to allow some room for restraint in it. So instead of having a hot take giggle reaction to the idea of restraint, the wise whistle-stopper looks at the individual instance and then decides whether the restraint approach makes sense in the given context or whether action does. At the end of 1992, President George Herbert Walker Bush made the explicit case for the benefits of restraint as a world-comforting attribute in his State of the Union address. A year ago tonight, I spoke to you at a moment of high peril. American forces had just unleashed Operation Desert Storm 
And after 40 days in the desert skies and four days on the ground, the men and women of America's armed forces and our allies accomplished the goals that I declared and that you endorsed. We liberated Kuwait. And, and soon after, the Arab world and Israel sat down to talk seriously and comprehensively about peace and historic first. And soon after that, at Christmas, the last American hostages came home. Our policies were vindicated. Much good can come from the prudent use of power. And much good can come of this. A world once divided into two armed camps now recognizes one sole and preeminent power, the United States of America. And they regard this with no dread, for the world trusts us with power, and the world is right. They trust us to be fair and restrained. They trust us to be on the side of decency. They trust us to do what's right. The need for restraint was embedded in the presidency from the start because the office was ill-defined, as William Symes, a member of the Massachusetts ratifying convention of the Constitution, asked when he asked the question, was ever a commission so brief, so general as this our president? Can we exactly say how far a faithful execution of the laws may extend? Well, he was quite prescient in asking those questions. And it was George Washington's virtue that informed the office that didn't have very much of that formal shape from the start. And even Washington wasn't a philosopher king. And those who've come after him have, have been men of varying temperament. To keep them in line, the standards of the office have made its occupants restrain themselves when there is no formal line that forces them to do so. But what we face now is a time where constraints are dropping across all parts of American society. And President Trump is nearly the perfect embodiment of that broader cultural trend. I'm relying here on the work of Paul Roberts in a book called The Impulse Society. Here's how the ball bounces. Through the last century, our values and institutions in America were shaped by people like George Bush, who had lived through war and depression and who knew the necessity of social cohesion and the self-sacrifice required to maintain that cohesion. That's what the, the greatest generation was all about. But in the 70s, that spirit of cohesion started to crack. Ideologically, individual fulfillment moved into the forward position libertarians from the right wanted to do their own thing and from the left liberals wanted freedom for from the constraints of conformity so now we come to our present day where the consumer and entertainment patterns all work against the kind of ethos that george bush's era represented here's paul roberts in the impulse society virtually every consumer proposition today from fast food and entertainment to social interactions is deliberately crafted so that rewards are immediate while costs are deferred and deferred so seamlessly that they almost disappear. Speed of grat gratification is now the standard against which all consumer experiences are judged. Restraint is not a part of that picture. But without restraint, hard governing choices get harder. Most of the big challenges America faces are long-term, collective, and require patience, whether it's the budget problems or climate change. The willingness to sacrifice and compromise are, are necessary to fix those issues. Obviously, income inequality is another one. The focus on short-term wins or whipsawing the neck to follow the latest object that distracts us all atrophies our capacity to employ 
the restraint required to do any of the big things. Big challenges become irritating, and solving them becomes seems inefficient. What's the fun in worrying our brow over tough choices? And our leaders who would like to coddle us and try to convince us that prudence is actually inefficiency. Prudence and patience and doing it the hard way is actually inefficiency. So they're teaching us how to avoid hard solutions. And they're making it seem like those solutions aren't lazy, but the lack of solutions or lack of trying to find solutions isn't lazy. It's that we're being smart and writing off solutions that will simply be unworkable. In short, the challenges we face require us to confront this desire-driven, efficiency-obsessed, impulse society. And that challenge existed long before Donald Trump arrived. But Trump, who, like Bush, is the son of a wealthy East Coast family, does not share his attributes. His attributes run in the opposite direction and fully in compliance with this new impulse society. His rise came not through war service, but through the kind of individual self-aggrandizement that is undermining the social cohesion of the previous generation. Perhaps no quote captures this as much as Donald Trump's claim to Howard Stern in 1997 that avoiding sexually transmitted diseases from the women he was sleeping with was his, quote, personal Vietnam. He said, I feel like a great and very brave soldier. So, The last war to call for collective sacrifice, which Donald Trump escaped through five deferments for bone spurs, is being compared in that case to an illness that possibly might have curtailed Donald Trump's pursuit of personal pleasure. The current presidency matches our society in another way. What was once primarily an interior process, presidents had lots of experiences the public never saw or knew even existed, it's now become a much more external office and iterative office. We used to have to wait for diaries to understand how a president felt. Donald Trump is tweeting his diary in real real time. So quiet acts, presidential acts unseen, have been replaced by a constant output designed to be extreme, outrageous, egotistical, and anything else that might generate ratings and clicks and excitement. And so this means the presidency, which was the instrument of collective action, of unity and cohesion, is no longer working against those forces that have made society into a short-term, self-obsessed, culture, but it is now the presidency adding to and exacerbating those underlying challenges. And again, this is not simply a challenge to presidential norms or something that can be written off as a question of decorum. It is a best practice of leadership and achievement that you need to do patient, deliberative, long-term work and not spend your time focused on short-term self-soothing output. A final point. It makes restraint more complicated. Restraint, the decision not to exercise power in the service of your goals only, is a governing quality. Presidential campaigns and politics are about seizing power with no restraint other than what is required to protect your power. So George Bush's restraint that led to the 1990 budget deal, which you all know about from that whistle-stop episode, was admirable governing restraint required to make a deal with the Democratic Congress. Whether you agree with that policy or not, George Bush resisted the calls from his own party to do what he thought was in the nation's larger interest. And by the way, resisted, if we're to take him at his word, with his own desires uh, at the time. But that determination, that restraint had a downside and arguably a fatal one. And when it came to his reelection, his base hated what he had done, the agreement he'd made with the Democrats. And so it was an action that led to a loss of power and a loss of the office. 
Presidential restraint is of limited use if you are no longer president. This is George Bush. I was your president from 1989 to 1993. And during that time, Saturday Night Live made fun of me on a fairly regular basis. Do I have any hard feelings about that? Yes, I do. And I'll have my revenge when the time is right. Not now. Wouldn't be prudent at this juncture. That's it for this edition of Whistle Stop. We'd like to hear what you think. Leave us a review on the iTunes store. It'll help us spread the word. Our producer is Jocelyn Frank. The managing producer of Slate Podcast is June Thomas. The executive producer is Gabe Roth. Our Whistle Stop Cracker Jack researcher is Brian Rosenwald. He's one of the editors-in-chief of Made by History, a Washington Post history section. Elizabeth Henson is out there crunching through all of this information, reliving entire months and years of American history down to its last moment in the help of uh, putting this all in front of me for my ramblings. And thanks to Alan Pang of CBS Radio, who helped make this episode happen on the CBS end. Thanks to all of you out there for listening. I'm John Dickerson of CBS This Morning. I'll be back in a few weeks.